You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 33 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And we're coming to you today from the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York. If this is your first time listening, thanks for coming. The Library Pros Podcast is produced bi-monthly, so don't forget to check us out and subscribe to our RSS feed, iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, where you can write a review, Google Play, Android, and via our email subscription service on our webpage, thelibrarypros.com. We are also on Twitter at The Library Pros or on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. So this is a very cool Library Pros episode because today joining us via Google Hangout is Kate Byrne, product manager for, oh boy, here we go, Symplectic. How'd that sound? That's it. Symplectic, in, and she is in London in the UK. And we also have Claire McKenzie, Associate Director learn, for Learning. Is it for Learning and Engagement? Does that sound good? <laughs> well, she's at the University That's of... That's fine. Okay, she's at the University of Wollongong Library from Wollongong, New South Wales, Australia. And Alison Dalby, Team Manager in Regulatory, regulatory Affairs at... Leo Pharma, a Danish pharmaceutical company in Copenhagen, Denmark. So Kate, Claire, and Allison were named Library Journal Movers and Shakers in 2016 for their work as community builders in connection with the International Librarians Network, and we're going to be referring to it as the ILN. Um, and Bob, are, uh, very great, Bob and I are very grateful to have all three appearing simultaneously from all around the, the, the globe. Uh, so thanks so much, for and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so Thank for having us. Okay, so we're going to speak Great with our having us. Yeah, it's awesome. This is awesome. I love this. We are going yeah. to speak with our group about the inspiration for the ILN, uh, along with how Im- important collaboration is um, in libraries beyond geographic borders. But first, let's talk to our guests and learn a little bit about their background. So starting with Claire, tell us – oh, actually, Bob, why don't you start? Oh, no, no. Go ahead. You almost called me the great Bob, so I'm really still the laughing great at that, Bob. but that's fine. Go ahead, Bob. You start. So, so starting with Claire, tell us uh, where you're from, uh, where you received your master's, and about where you have worked, and then we'll hear from Allison and Kate. Thanks, Bob. Um, so I'm Claire McKenzie. I am currently the Associate Director for Learning and Engagement at the University of Wollongong Library in Australia. Wollongong is a city about an hour's drive south of Sydney, which a lot of your listeners probably know where Sydney is. Um, I've actually got two library degrees. In Australia, we have an undergraduate library degree as well as a master's. So um, mine, both, both of my uh, library degrees came from Charles Sturt University here in Australia. And before I was, I've been at University of Wollongong for about two years now. And before that, I was at the University of New South Wales, also in an academic library, which is where I met Alison and Kate. Okay, Allison, how about you? Hi, um, so I'm, I am a Sydney cider born and bred, but I'm currently living in Copenhagen, Denmark, where I have made a, I've been here for about two years now, and I made a jump out of libraries into the pharmaceutical industry, and I'm managing a team of people working in regulatory affairs. Um, but I have been a true blue librarian. Um, I did my library qualifications by distance education through the through Curtin University in Perth. 
And then I also have a Masters of Business Administration, also based distance ed, through um, the University of New England, which is a regional university in Australia. I started working in special libraries. Um, I've worked in a bunch of really weird and interesting special libraries. And uh, my last library job was at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, where I was working with Claire and Kate. Okay. So last but not least, I believe it's Claire, right? Uh, Kate. Kate, I'm sorry. That's okay. Claire and I have spent most of our professional lives getting muddled up with each other. It's our own fault, really. Uh, so, hi. Uh, I am indeed in the London, UK, but I am another Australian abroad. I was in Sydney where I did my Master's in Information and Knowledge Management at the University of Technology, Sydney. And I spent about 10 years working for UNSW, University of New South Wales there, where I worked across research services and support, specialising more into research systems and where indeed I did get to know Alison and Cliff. Okay, so we kind of went over this before, uh, with the first question, but just as a recap for the group, um, the three of you all came together. It sounded like two of you came together in school or, or at Wollongong? Not quite. Um, so uh, Kate and myself, so this is Alison, Kate and myself met while I was actually running a conference in Sydney for the Australian Library and Information Association. ALIA, which is basically the Australian version of ALA. Um, Kate was volunteering at the conference. We met really briefly, but we didn't really get to know each other then. But uh, about six months after that, we both ended up working at the University of New South Wales in the library there. And we became good friends. And then separately, also through my work um, as a volunteer with Alia, actually back at that stage, I was then working for them, long story. Um, I met Claire because Claire was volunteering with one of Alia's uh, board advisory committees. I put Claire and Kate together because Kate was doing some really interesting things as a volunteer. Claire was doing some really interesting things as a volunteer. And I thought these two people have to meet each other. And then through a series of exciting events, we all ended up working together at the University of New South Wales. And have we kind only of kind of, we've only kind of stepped into each other's jobs sometimes as well. Like yes. Claire did a job and then I did that job and Kate did a job and Claire did that job. And it's, it's become somewhat incestuous. <laughs> it was really for the best that some of us left the country. Yeah, yeah. it was getting weird. <laughs> Okay, so uh, I guess this next question, Bob, you want to take it? Yeah, I guess it's for Allison. Um, we know how difficult it can be to attend conferences with the workload that we have with our jobs uh, in the public library sector. And I'm assuming that it's it's difficult, uh, whether it's an administration that is not necessarily open to staff attending conferences or being shorthanded at the library uh, for librarians to even have the ability to attend those conferences. So distance learning helps foster that collaboration. W would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, I did both of my professional qualifications via distance learning. Um, I guess I wanted to make a point around this that 
there is a lot to be gained by meeting people face-to-face, -face, a huge amount to be gained by meeting people face-to-face. -face. But there's also a lot of barriers. If you limit your professional networking to the people that you can meet face-to-face, -face, then there are so many people you will never meet and so many fantastic ideas you will never hear. So when you open up to distance learning, distance collaboration, you encounter a much wider range of people. Um, the other really important point here is that often, I mean, to, if you're working somewhere and you want to go to a conference, 99% of the time you need your boss's permission or support or something like that. Even if they're not the ones funding it, you need to take holiday or use it as work time. You need permission to go. When you're engaging in some kind of distance online collaboration, you often don't need to ask that permission. And we have people that have been involved with our program that joined up because they were denied permission to engage in other international activities and found that our program was a way to build their international network without having to ask that permission. So I just want to give a, a quick shout out here to, um, do you guys know the Library 2.0 virtual conferences run out of San Jose State University? Sure. Yeah, they're really, really cool. So every year they're running these this online conference and it, it goes over a really lot, like different time zones and everything. The whole thing is free. You can join up online. You don't need to ask your boss's permission to go to any of it. Um, <laughs> you don't need to worry about being short-staffed and the whole thing's recorded and available after the fact. So if you open up your professional networking, your professional learning to stuff that happens online and by distance, you get such a wider range of things available to you. Well, that makes sense, too. Um, something that, that Bob and I are um, very close to is a group that, um, that we moderate every month here in Suffolk County. Um, it's, we call it the TIFF groups, the Technology Information Forum. And we've started, um, the end of last year, started streaming every meeting uh, over Facebook. And what's nice is if you had a meeting and it was maybe poorly attended, maybe five or ten people, uh, usually it's geographic um, because of the virtue of us being on an island. The further east you go, the more rural it gets. So the less people seem to attend because the bulk of the people are in the middle of the island. So we started streaming, and now what's nice to see is what I call the legacy effect, where maybe I had five people at the meeting, six people at the meeting, but two months later, over 200 or 300 people saw that same meeting. So it really wow. does make sense to, to have that kind of, that, that thing uh, available uh, online. Can and I jump you... in for a sec, Chris? Sorry, Alison, it's Claire. Can I jump in for a sec sure. and just also talk about the value of, um, of Twitter in this space? Just about everybody I know in libraries I've met through Twitter. Um, and as an informal online learning or distance learning network, um, I can't, of, of the, the things that I've got out of being involved, being connected in that way. Well, I agree, one hundred percent. And Twitter is really a great place to actually find guests for a podcast. So uh, you know, because <laughs> you're always finding you know people who are following other people who are following other people, and you know, mm. Twitter can be a very nasty, evil place too. But I haven't seen that because when you deal with professionals and, and other colleagues, it doesn't tend to be that way. Um, so Twitter is actually a great asset. Uh, so uh, we all know that. You know how important it is to share ideas and collaborate within the profession and um, you know can you tell us about what uh, you look you know how you look um, from your experiences that took your I can't even talk today I'm having one of those days but can you tell us 
what you took away from your experience at the International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions Congress in Helsinki, Finland. Yeah, so five years ago now, wow, five years, I got to go to my first international conference, which was in Helsinki, it's IFLA, and if any of you haven't yet been, which I'm sure maybe many of your listeners, imagine uh, 5,000 to six or 7,000 librarians from all around the world converging on one city uh, for a week of committee meetings and uh special issue groups, as well as your more traditional conference presentations. Um, I had put together a presentation on the work that I'd been doing with the Australian Library and Information Association around new professionals, and that had been accepted by the new professional special interest group. But what was incredible was bringing together for me all of these new amazing professionals from around the world I got to meet, and people I had back in Australia cheering me on on Twitter in real time and feeling like I wish that the people I knew on one side of the world could know the people that I knew on the other side of the world. And that kind of basic premise of wouldn't it be great if you could get that benefit of going to an international conference without having to spend money from our own pockets to go to an international conference because for most people, unless you are very senior in your career, you're not getting funded to go to international conferences. And that was really the the idea that I came back to Australia with that uh, together with, with Claire and Alison turned into the International Librarians Network. That really is cool. And Bob, could you imagine going to Finland? Um, yeah, if you if you pay for it, pal, I'll go right now. <laughs> I can, can, I just, uh, can I just add to this? Um, actually, uh, Kate, Claire and I, the three of us had the opportunity to go to another IFLA con conference, what it must be three years ago now in Singapore. And mm -hmm. that's for you, gosh. Um, and that's one of the really cool things about IFLA conferences is that they are, of course, run in all these different parts of the world. And so just by getting to go to an IFLA conference, you get to then visit these really cool places. Um, and it was a massively eye-opening experience. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. You know, just as an aside, were there a lot of Americans there? Americans are always pretty well represented at IFLA. Um, so more or less every other year is either the US or Europe. And then the opposite year is somewhere else in the rest of the world. Um, so what you tend to see is wherever the host country is, there's an increase in representation from people from that region. Um, but regardless, there's kind of a core group that tend to make it year after year. And they're the people that are really passionate about the organisation, who really volunteer with it, who form all of the special interest groups and committees. And there is a committee for almost any topic you can think of at IFLA. Oh, that really is cool stuff. Sounds like we should go, Chris. Sounds like we have to uh, put in a PO, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I want to go to I think Finland. You just, I think you just missed uh, Ifler in Poland this year, uh, but next year, I think it's it kind next of year? Malaysia. Yeah, that's right, Malaysia. So go on, guys, Malaysia. How does that sound? We can do Malaysia. I don't see why we couldn't do Malaysia. Sure. What is that like a like a twenty eight hour flight? Uh, <laughs> You're talking <laughs> to Australians here. Everything is a twenty eight hour flight. That's pretty funny. And we, so I get. Go ahead, go ahead, Chris. Sorry. No, that's okay. Go ahead. I, I guess our next question is for Allison. 
Um, so when did the light bulb go off? And, and I guess, how did the community and the building mentoring idea um, of the International Librarians Network start to materialize? So how did you get it up and running? Uh, that must have been a big project because of the, the back-end business model that, that probably needed to be implemented. Um, well, actually, the community building mentoring idea was the International Librarians Network. It wasn't a part of it. it. It was the core of it. As Kate said, how do we get people on one side of the world talking to people on the other side of the world? Um, it was not initially a big project. The ILN became the largest mentoring program for librarians in the world. But at no point did we ever say to each other, hey, let's build the largest mentoring program for librarians in the world. We thought this was going to be tiny. We had no idea if this was going to work. So it, it wasn't a big project. It was a small project. It was the three of us and a notepad sitting in a cafe, actually quite close to Wollongong. Um, so we just thought up some stuff and we put together this idea and we decided we'd run a pilot on this and if you call it a pilot and it doesn't work well it's okay because it's just a pilot right um so it wasn't meant to be big it just became a lot more popular than we expected it to actually it was a lot more successful than we expected it to be and we got more and more and more people we in the first round this pilot round we honestly thought that we would struggle to convince 20 people to sign up to this crazy idea that we had. And to our surprise, we got 92 people from a whole bunch of different countries. And we were looking at each other kind of going, oh my God, what have we done? The next round of the program, we got almost 400 people. And at that point, we really were starting to freak out. Um, as it got bigger, it obviously became a bigger project. And we reached a tipping point where at the beginning, there were no costs involved. We, we never charged people to participate, but there were also no costs to us for running this. Everything, every piece of software we were using was free, but it got to the point where it was too big. Free software was not enough and we had to start paying for things. Now, we initially paid for things out of our own pocket, but even then it, it got a bit too much. And then we, we realized we had to start reaching out to people to support us financially. Um, and that was through sponsorships and partnership arrangements. That, that funding understanding was the tipping point because you can't just go to an organization and say, hey, sponsor us. You need to have, say, a business bank account to receive the money they're going to give you because they're not just going to give money to anyone. So then we had to have a business bank account. And in order to do that, we had to incorporate. So we had to create a constitution and a board of directors and things like that. Um, that's kind of how we had to then build a business model around this. And now the three of us, along with two other very smart and generous people, form the board of directors of the ILN. Um, we had a number of people who were really supportive throughout this as well. We had people that we referred to as critical friends. These were people that we trusted, that we could go to for advice. They would question us, push us, challenge us. And we had a lot of support, particularly in the early days, and as sponsors and partners from ALA, the International Relations Roundtable. They were our first partners to come on and provide some funding support. Also, the Australian Library and Information Association, who provided some funding, but masses of free publicity for us and a lot of good advice. And Queensland University of Technology, which is one of the major library schools here in Australia. They've also been incredibly supportive, both with money and free publicity. So 
we created this by starting small. It got big. We had a lot of support from other people and it suddenly turned into a big deal. Did you really want the, uh, the free advertising when it got really big? That must have been scary for you. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine just something blowing up like that. And, and it's just the three of you looking at each other say, well, uh oh, now what? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I got to the point the last round that we did, we had over a 1000 people. Wow. Um, yeah, I, I still can't believe what we did. <laughs> that really is, is pretty amazing. So it, it, so when you started, you know, when, when the ILN started regional, did it start regionally and then kind of exploded from there? Or, you know, as, and it's a mentor program, a mentor program from what I understand, right? And it grew from there. And, um, and or did it collectively uh, have a group of people internationally that you knew that you could kind of start this with? How did the first people find out about it, basically? So how did, how did this start? Why did it explode so quickly? Uh, I can't answer why it exploded so quickly, although we've got you know, some ideas about that. But it didn't start regionally. It, from, from day one, we wanted it to be international. So as, as Alison said, we had 90, uh, 90 or 92 people in that first pilot. And we had, we're, we're, we're all quite well connected in the library profession in Australia. And we knew we had people who were interested and would come on board and help us. But we were really worried in that first pilot that we would have more Australians than anything else and that we wouldn't actually be able to provide an international experience for some of our participants. But it did work out that um, just about everybody else in the world got an Australian partner, but international for everybody. So that was good. But so right from the beginning, we were, we were targeting um, internationally and we... We literally, we launched it at um, the New Librarian Symposium, which is a conference, in fact, the same conference that Kate and Alison met at all those years ago, just a further along iteration of it. We launched it at that, which was another actual online collaboration. Kate was at the conference face-to-face. Alison and I were following along back in Sydney, um, putting out stuff on Twitter as she was speaking and promoting it. And... Um, yeah, that it just it just kind of went. Um, I guess people told their friends, who told their friends, who told their friends, and it just it just started exploding. That really is. So I, I, it's crazy, right, happening. Bob? Is, is could you imagine That's, Tiff Tiff blowing up like this? Well, yeah, then we have to develop a business model and learn how to do business like that. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Wait, you're flying by you the seat of your pants. Money. You only need to do that if you need money. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, we probably need money. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I, I'm, a, you know, I love because uh, Chris and I've been doing the TIFF group and this other group that we work with, uh, the CATS group, the Computer and Technical Services. Uh, it's a division of our local um, Suffolk County Library Association. So um, I'm wondering kind of how you got the word out and, and I'm sure when you launched it at the conferences uh, and you said that you reached out through your networking that you that you guys had um, and how did the participants communicate? Was it mostly like through social media or were there other ways? Um, I think... If you don't mind, I might split this up because there's there's two separate questions um, in that for us. The first was how did we get the word out? And we literally just at the beginning, we tapped into the people we knew on Twitter and said, hey, we're doing this. Can you tell your friends about it and tell your friends and tell your friends and your network? Um, we had some 
early support from some people that had quite large networks. Uh, so there's a Danish librarian named Jan Holmquist who has a really strong professional network on Twitter in particular, and he helped us promote the program to his European network. Uh, Fiona Bradley is a friend of ours who at the time was working for IFLA. That was very helful. And Loida Garcia-Fibo, who is now, I think, incoming president of ALA? Or I'm not sure exactly where that's at, but, um, you know, we, we knew her before then. Um, but she, she was also really supportive and she helped promote the program to her contacts. Um, and we also set up a network of ILN ambassadors. So basically, it comes down to the idea of, so you've got a country like Poland, right? In Australia, I know how librarians contact each other. I know what the mail, mailing lists are. I know the Twitter groups and networks. I know what how librarians talk to each other. I don't know how librarians talk to each other in Poland, right? Because A, they're speaking Polish and they've got their own things and I don't know about these things. But if we can get one person in Poland who knows that stuff and we can talk to them, they can then promote the program in their country. And so we did that in a lot of different countries around the world. I think we ended up doing this for what, like 40 or 50 in total, Claire? How many were there? Yeah, we had about, uh, we had about 35 country ambassadors. At, at any given yeah. time, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Then like they, sometimes they'd cycle through and we'd have one for a while and then we'd lose them. But these were volunteers just like us. So they were volunteering to promote the program in their country. And that's how we, we got it out into other countries. Um, I will say, though, that to our surprise, apart from launching the program at the New Librarian Symposium, we attended a lot of conferences and we talked about the ILN at conferences, but to be honest, they were not a particularly effective way to promote the program. Conferences did other things. They helped us like, develop our understanding of, of how to market the program. They helped us build our partnerships. But we very rarely saw a huge boost in numbers after conferences. And maybe that's because people who are going to these international conferences, they've already got international networks. They're not the ones that needed the ILN. It's their, their network that needed the ILN, the ones that weren't at conferences. Um, you asked another question, how did our participants communicate with each other? So we, we paired people up and we asked them to communicate in whatever method suited them best. We introduced them by email, but uh, a lot of our participants told us that they also use social media. They use Twitter and Facebook and WhatsApp and Skype and Google Hangouts and all kinds of things. People were, were talking to each other, doing all kinds of stuff. And, and I would get these stories from people about how they're, they're messaging their partner who's on the other side of the world on WhatsApp on their commute to work in the morning and their partner's going home from work in the evening. And it, it was really cool. It was really heartwarming. <laughs> that really does sound cool. I love it. God, that's so cool. Okay, so tell us, you know, get bring us in inside. Um, what were the, the nuts and bolts of how ILN worked? Did someone have to fill out an application or send an email? How did like how did the process work? How did you know who was going to be the mentor and the mentee? And how, tell us how that whole process worked because that had to be kind of daunting. Being you know, if one person was in Malaysia and another person was in Mexico or something like that. Did I lose everybody? Kate. Oh. Do we lose Kate? Have we, have we lost Kate? Uh oh. I can. 
Let me see. Do you want I... me to jump in, Chris? Yeah, if you can, and I'll, I'll try to get her in the meantime. I'll, I'll see if I sure. can add her again. Um, so we had a we had an online application process right from the start, and Alison, jump in if I get some of this wrong. Um, we had an online application uh, thing. So people, we asked people to tell us um, who they were, what country they were from, what sector they worked in. So were they public library, academic library, school library, or a student? Um, we asked them to tell us what they were interested in. So for the pilot round, we just said, what are you interested in? And after that, we realized that we needed to create a controlled vocabulary of things they were interested in because it made it easier to, to match people. Um, and we, the first, the pilot round, and in fact, the second round as well, we literally cut all those things up into pieces of paper and crawled around on the lounge room floor and said things like, I have a public librarian from, from Poland. Does anyone have a match? And someone said, well, I've got a school librarian um, in, in Perth in Australia. How about we put them together? Because they're both interested in children's literature. Um, we didn't have the concept of a mentor and a mentee. So right from the very beginning, the ILM was designed to be uh, a peer mentoring program. So the the core belief for us was that everybody has something to learn and something to give. Also asked, one of the questions we asked was um, what stage you were at in your career. And we also asked people to indicate to us what they would like their um, program partner to be. So did they want someone from uh, the same sector or from a different sector? Um, what, what were the things that they were looking for in a partner? And we just matched them and put them together and provided them with some discussion topics and let them go. That's fantastic. I guess, Claire, if you don't mind, um, <clears throat> continue. Uh, just let us know how many people participated and, and from how many different countries were they? So across the three and a half years that the program ran, we had um, about five and a half thousand people go through it participants now some of those were repeats we did have a core handful of people who did every program with us we ran two a year um so we ran and eight rounds and eight rounds in, in total didn't we claire yes yeah yes we ran eight yes so we had five and a half thousand participants and a very small handful of them did all eight rounds but a number of people uh, did more than one so that's not five and a half thousand unique individuals uh, from 130 countries and I'm, I'm just looking at the list of countries that participated and, and in alphabetical order it's literally everything from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe. That's incredible. Um, it that, was that's crazy. It was stuff. incredible. We had around around um, eight or nine hundred from the US over that time. This really is an amazing um, project. I can see how you may have been overwhelmed by the whole process. It, it, it was huge. After the second round where we crawled around on the lounge room floor matching 400 people, we realised we needed to call in reinforcements. And Alison, I'll get you to quickly talk about the reinforcements. Uh, my, my husband happens to um, enjoy programming in his spare time. And when I explained the problem that we were having to him, we ended up realising that what we were doing was not that dissimilar to internet dating, really. We were trying to match people up. 
and we figured when it comes to internet dating programs, there's no people behind the scenes matching people up, right? It's it's all algorithms. So we need to make a way, there, there must be a way to, to do this. And um, after we, we had some good kind of conversations with my husband, um, and we started talking about, well, what is actually the decision hierarchy? How do we turn this into a decision that a computer could understand? And we ended up having to go back and make some changes to our application form to, to reflect this. But basically my, my husband wrote a matching script using um, PowerShell, Microsoft PowerShell, uh, which to this day, I, I still, I love this thing. What it does is we, we feed all of these, um, all the data from our application form into this thing and it spits out, it, it matches every applicant with every other applicant and it spits out a score, like a kind of percentage score between them. Um, and from that, it finds the combination of two people that fits best. So for instance, Chris, you might be exactly what I'm looking for in a partner but I may not be what you're looking for in a partner. So then that's a bad combined score. But if we are what each other are looking for perfectly, then that's a great combined score. So you see my point, it's kind of like internet dating. That really so that helped us. It, it, it then meant that we were scalable. Like we could suddenly go from 400 to a thousand. It didn't really matter how many people we put in there because we could do that matching in a, a few hours. That's a good way to relate to it. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It still seems like a daunting task. <laughs> it's, that's a lot of work. Well, and, and you all had day jobs in the meantime, right? Yeah, and and yeah. we're lucky that I, that my husband was available to do that, and he did it for the price of a good batch of cookies that Kate made. Cookies, very good. What, yeah, what, he he gets paid in cookies. We'll always get work for cookies, right, Bob? Yeah. We get paid in cookies too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so sadly, we understand that the ILN has been discontinued. So tell us why it ended. Obviously, because I'm, geez, it's it looks like it was never ending and getting bigger and bigger. And what did you learn from working with it? It's a really it's a really big question, and it was a really really hard decision for us to make to end the program. Fundamentally, the the three of us believe very strongly in continuous growth and change and learning, and we reached the point that we realized that we were no longer learning from running the program each new round was just the same thing over again. So we were not getting the personal benefit or the personal rewards and engagement from running the program that we did at the beginning. We'd already proved that we could do it. Um, in addition to that, two of us moved overseas. The third moved from Sydney to Wollongong, which is actually quite a distance. We all changed jobs. Like we had a lot of lives outside of the island and yet this thing wasn't changing and that was actually quite challenging for us. Um, our community that we had built was incredibly understanding of our decision to discontinue the program. Um, and they, they realized what we had given as volunteers to this. We've all had situations where we've seen programs, particularly when they're run by volunteers, sometimes go a little longer than they should, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, that you get people who are doing it out of obligation. They don't have the passion for it anymore. And you sometimes wish you could say to them, hey, guys, just, just go out on a high. And so we wanted to do that with the ILM. We didn't want it to fade away. We didn't want it to get kind of messy or, or I don't know, bad in some way. We thought we're doing really well. There's no reason why we can't say that was great. We achieved a whole bunch of stuff. Now let's move on to the next thing. 
We also, I think, had an interesting experience with what we talk about as volunteerism in the library profession. We were running this as volunteers and it took a lot out of us. In our four years of running it, we didn't encounter anyone else that was really willing to say to us, hey, I'll take this on. And it's a lot to ask of someone to take this on. In the library profession, I think we rely on volunteers a lot for our professional activities. We, write, we rely on volunteers to run conferences for us, to run programs, to run podcasts. And it's fantastic and it's wonderful. And the fact that it happens is amazing. But now I've made this switch into the pharma industry. And you know, when I tell people in pharma what I did and that we didn't charge for it, they think we're crazy. <laughs> the very idea that people would just give up their time for free to create this stuff. They're like, what? Why wouldn't you insist on being paid for this? It's like, paid by who? Um, yeah. So, it, you know, it, it's really brought home to us that um, we rely so heavily on volunteers in the library profession. And that that has a built-in cost that you you have to recognize that people have to do it because they love it. And when they stop that, it, they have to move on. Um, you, you asked um, what we learned from working with it. I think that's a really, uh, it's a really big question for all of us. For myself, I, I think the biggest thing I learned, I learned so many things about different libraries around the world. Um, and a lot of that is sitting on our website now, interlibnet.org. It's all there. You can have a look at that. Um, but on a personal level, I learned what we were capable of. If, if I had said to myself four years ago, hey, you're going to create the, this massive thing and 130 countries and blah, 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 I would have thought I was crazy. So I learned that we were capable of doing that. But I think that um, Claire and Kate might have their own things that they learned from it. Claire, what, you, what about you? Um, I think that's true, the, what we were capable of. Um, is an important part of that. I also learned a lot about um, collaboration. So Kate and Alison and I worked very closely together for many years. And for many of those years, we were actually, our day jobs were at the same place as well. Um, I think it's fair to say that the three of us have quite different uh, styles and ways of working. And there were times when it was challenging to to fit those three things together um, and maintain the friendship that was actually at the at the basis of what we were doing and was very important to us you know that thing about never going to business with friends um well we we did and it's okay you know we, we live in three different countries now so we're still friends it's good <laughs> you yeah, survived away from each other that's why yeah exactly you had to go to the other side of the planet in order to get away from each other right that's where having three of you can come in handy so chris bob you might need a an extra co-host well, i don't know if anybody can handle us whenever two of you are ready to kill each other the third one is there as the voice of reason going we'd have to pay them the middle ground yeah you're right bob we probably have to pay them and they'd be hazard pay yeah, we have no they're money called, now. So. They're called mediators at that point, guys. <laughs> the, the fact that we can get all three of you together, they're in three different countries, and I can't get Bob to come five miles. That's true. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Hey, you know, it's raining out. It's, we have a nor'easter coming. Come on. Oh, yeah, your Mustang is going to get wet. Oh, it's in the garage. It doesn't get wet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as well as what Alison and Claire touched on, I would say I learned so much about distance communication and global virtual teams and the 
many tools that we have available to us to help us with that, but also how extraordinarily special the library profession is for how open to sharing it is. Like we've worked with technology people, we've worked with accountants, you know, both Ali and I are now based outside of libraries and it continues to shine how incredible it is of how open people are in the library profession to share their ideas, to share their resources, to share their voice and to support one another. And that was really the foundation of the ILN and it was something that it taught us every single day that we did it and something that I will be reminded of throughout my career wherever I go. Those well, technology people can be awful tough, i got to tell you. Yeah, they're, they're really hard. You know, they're, they're back there in the server room, you know? Oh, you know what? Don't start ranking on us. <laughs> well, you know, it is kind of funny, too. I mean, tell me about – I mean, we're going to go off-road for just a second. I have this one thing I wanted to bring up. Um, isn't it true that no matter – you can tell me that I'm completely off, off the mark, but have you noticed with the ILN – Library professionals, no matter what country they were in, no matter where they came from, no matter what their background, they were always willing to help, like you said before, anyone who came in who wanted to, who needed help. I mean, did you see that that was like the common strain with regard to ILN and what people were, you know, what librarians usually do? I would definitely say that is the norm. Um, it's an incredibly generous profession, particularly in terms of emotional capital. People are always willing to, to put a shoulder out there to to help hold someone else up. I would say that we are in a really diverse profession around the world in terms of different subsections, different motivations. And we did really encounter a wide variety of people in that space. And we found the people that, that really thrived with the island. We had some golden participants who were in every single round, were people who were most open to, to trying something different, to meeting someone new, who were willing to come in without really heavily preconceived expectations we did have some people who would apply and send us really specific applications that I want somebody who is a, a primary school librarian who specializes in music and you know uh, deals with this one particular issue and that was in always Japan. In, in Japan. Japan they have to be in Japan too yes <laughs> and, and that was always really hard because we wanted to to give people what they wanted but it, it's it's twofold. One is that's really hard for us to magic someone up to match you with. But the second thing was always often people who came with a shopping list like that also came with very specific expectations of what they wanted to get from the relationship, not what they wanted to give to the relationship. And these things, like, like in any relationship in our lives, our professional relationships are the same. We really... Um, there's a, an ad in Australia, uh, you only get out what you put in. Um, and, and that's so true because, you know, you have to, you have to have some skin in the game and, and you have to go in expecting to support others. And that was what was so important to us about the, the peer mentorship model that we embraced and, and kind of gave life to with the ILN was actually about recognising that everybody has something to give and everybody has something to learn, and that we were really just the facilitators of making that happen. Well, you guys should be very proud of what you did because it sounds absolutely amazing. That's a great answer, too. Thank you. So uh, the project seems like it was an immense undertaking, and it looks like it was a big success uh, based upon the amount of people who participated. Uh, we want to thank you for sharing your experience with it, and we're going to take a short break. 
And when we return, we're going to speak with Claire, Kate, and Allison about the ILN's reach and how it helped people who participated in it and the concept of collaboration across borders. We'll be right back. Okay, so we are back with Kate Byrne, Claire McKenzie, and Allison Dalby, founders of the International Librarians Network. So, first question for Kate, actually. We're going to direct us at Kate, but anybody else can chime in as well. What are the technology cha challenges uh, involved in undertaking a project like this? Well, it's funny because the technology challenges were both big but also really tiny at the same time. We did a lot of the islands work with consumer products. We started out actually working entirely with free suites of products until we got too big. Um, there's a certain number of emails you can send a day from a free Gmail account. We found out how many that was uh, pretty quickly. Uh, and so then it was a matter of scalability. And I suppose that was the biggest technology challenge was trying to preempt what was the next problem we were going to hit and what were we going to do about that. And really where we we got past all of those challenges was calling on our brain's trust. So a lot of the stuff we could either figure out ourselves using Google and uh, our own experiences, but otherwise we're very lucky to have, as well as a fantastic community of librarians out there, a fantastic community of supporters from other professions. And so calling on our um, technical consultants, be they Alison's lovely husband, uh, who wrote our script for matching participants, which saved us and our knees from crawling around matching participants on tiny slips of paper. To uh, my lovely husband, who was our, our uh, video and audio recording consultant, to a fantastic uh, pair of uh, friends and colleagues from the uh, museum and biosciences sectors who really chipped in with helping us manage our website infrastructure and hosting. But a lot of it was just getting by in the day to day. And when you're talking about facilitating people communicating, free tools exist to do all of that now. You don't need to build anything new. You don't need to build anything custom. We did talk about going big at one point, building our own app and but it's really hard to do that when you're operating on the smell of an oily rag. So we really focused on <laughs> what we were here for, which was to help people communicate. And there are a million tools out there, Facebook, Twitter, WordPress, uh, that just get the job done. It sure seems to have worked out for you guys, definitely. So I guess uh, for Claire, um, is there a title for the mentor and mentee? And I'm not like saying Ellen that. Druda, I know Christian, you mean? I'm not saying that. <laughs> what, you mean like Ellen Druda? I just saw that in there. I'm not reading that script like that. Half of our participants no. had to change the name to Ellen, and the other half had to be Druda? Yeah, Ellen Druda. That's right. Ellen Druda, that's her name. We owe her like $500. That's great. That's, that's five bucks. <laughs> that's five bucks US. That's, that's probably nearly six bucks Australian. <laughs> there you go. How many kroners? I think you, I reckon you could get like uh, about 32 Danish kroner for that. <laughs> Ellen's great. in big trouble now. How's she going to do that conversion? Oh, She's going to have to retire and then give us half of her retirement. 
so to go back to the question, um, yes. <laughs> no, we have touched on this earlier that um, that we didn't we didn't split it up like a traditional hierarchical mentoring program. We were <gasps> very very clear. Although our, some of our participants did struggle with this because you hear mentoring and you automatically think someone's going to be the mentor, but we strongly believed that um, that everybody could could be the mentor and everybody could be the mentee. That the most seasoned professional has things to learn from a new grad, um, and you know, and vice versa. That that a, a new graduate um, can learn from anybody, not just from their peers as well well as people with more experience so we tried we stayed away from that a lot okay. we even wrote a report about it <laughs> okay we actually have to i'm going to take a i'm going to pause the uh the recording real quick i have a, a technical issue i have to deal with so just give me one minute okay mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> okay we're back okay so for, for kate i guess tell us a little bit more about the technology challenges that you might have had with a project like this well, it's funny because some of our technology challenges were really uniquely global problems. So not things that necessarily people in the US or Australia or the UK or Copenhagen would expect in their, their everyday life. So we had a, a one of our volunteers based in Cameroon who we could never even include a photograph of her on our website because she couldn't get enough bandwidth in order to upload a photograph to send it to us. And she was asking whether there would be possibly a version of our program run entirely in print mail uh, because internet reliability in her country was so poor. Uh, we also had a problem with when we got a volunteer in China to help us reach out there. At that point, our website was a wordpress.com site, which is actually a banned site within China, so they couldn't see our website. So they were trying to reach out and support our program, but nobody could see our program. Um, but actually, also beyond that, there were limits to what we could do with technology. So... One of the things that was, I think, possibly the biggest source of frustration to all three of us was when somebody signed up to the program and then didn't participate but also didn't let us know that they could no longer participate. And so we would match them and, and connect them with their partner and then they'd never talk to their partner. And there's really nothing we could do in that scenario. We could send follow-up emails and try and get them involved, but you, they haven't come up with the technology yet that you can kind of reach across the internet and poke someone and go, Oi, Hugh, what are you doing? Um, because we never <laughs> wanted to let anyone down, and, and that was always the limit of our power. I guess I'm going to jump in next, right? Yes, you are. Yeah, okay. Cool. So we'll jump in. We'll do a number four, right? Yep. Okay. So collaboration is something that Bob and I believe in greatly, regardless of how we sound on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We've reached out locally from here in Suffolk County to our neighbors in Nassau County, which is the county between us and New York City. Um, and beyond, actually, when we're having that uh, library technology meetings by streaming them on Facebook. So we also have a joint meeting twice a year with Nassau, which we're actually going to be doing in a couple of weeks. Um, so tell us how you envision collaboration, especially now that you're in London and the profession, whether it's local, regionally, nationally, or internationally, you know, because uh, library professionals, as library professionals, we're all basically trying to achieve the same goals. I think collaboration is and remains incredibly important to our profession and to, and to many other professions as well. Um, there are a lot of things about librarianship that is, by its very nature, international. 
Um, so back back when I was based in an academic library, we would talk sometimes about the difference between being a medical librarian and being a law librarian because the body is global, whereas law is so jurisdictional, it can be very, very local and the knowledge you need to support that can be really different. And I think the same thing applies to, to collaboration. There's so much that we do that is, that is very global and is very translatable. Um, you know, uh, we used to talk about this idea of being global, bringing global ideas and making them local and collaboration provides the opportunity to do that. Uh, and I think we have so many fantastic tools available to us now, things like Twitter and Facebook, as well as you know blogs and podcasts that allow us to kind of reach out and make those connections and begin new collaborations to, to make things come about. I recently got to be one of the foundational members of the awesome foundation libraries innovation chapter. And part of my privilege of doing that was getting to read about these incredible projects around the world, trying to, to help libraries reach their communities a little bit more and achieve a little bit more, all looking for just a tiny bit of funding. And I think that is the one thing that we, we do struggle with continually in, this, in libraries is not a willingness to collaborate, it's not a willingness to communicate. We have that in absolute spades, but it's actually finding ways to make those collaborations and make those things we create sustainable, to find funding, to, to find legs, to, to really make these things last. And I think that's where we need to think about collaboration in other industries and where we can learn from others who perhaps have opportunities to partner us with other kinds of organisations who can help us reach our goals as well. Well, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, just in terms of um, within the library field, um, and Bob, you can probably you know, chime in on this too. As we're talking about this, and I'm thinking about all the different people that we've spoken to um, and ways that we've helped each other, uh, we did a, uh, an episode with a gentleman, uh, Jeff Hutter, who is in Salmon, Idaho, and uh, found him on Twitter because he had tagged ALA uh, about building a podcasting studio in their library. So I said, well, this is great. I'm going to reach out to this this uh, this library. And we got Jeff, and we've had him on for two episodes, and he's been a real advocate um, promoting our podcast and talking about different things. We've been collaborating. Uh, he's been helping us over at Sachem with regards to some of the equipment that he used to build his studio. Um, so in that respect, if it wasn't for Twitter, we never would have actually connected and, and worked together on some some pretty interesting things. Um, and like you said before, Twitter is a great tool for communication. Absolutely. But it does take, you know, both both people willing to put themselves out there and, and to make something happen. And I think that is, is something that is really special about our profession is the willingness of people to help each other. Um, you know, our uh, financial consultant, also a volunteer, uh, for the ILM, which uh, is her background is an accountant and she continually comments to us how special it is and it's really not something that she experiences working with other accountants. Uh, similarly, now working with a lot of software developers, whilst they are very collaborative and support each other within the spectrum of what we do, they don't have you know vast international networks of software de developers they call upon when they get stuck. Whereas libraries are special like that and I think that's something that we should really make sure that we value and, and that we continue to do to support each other. Absolutely. And, and when you take profit margin out, 
of something, even if it's not for profit. Uh, when you take the, um, the the profit model model or the profit drive out of things, you tend to get the better of people than you do the worse of people. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think I think there's lots of business models in, in both spaces, but I think um, what's really special with library is there's there's an, a set of ideas and a, and a, a philosophy that unites us and brings us together. Sure. Okay, Bob. You're up. Yeah. So I guess, um, Allison, tell us a little bit about. Um, the, obviously, there's a definite difference between collaboration and mentoring. Uh, and mentoring doesn't have to be a situation where one person is older and the other is younger. So tell us about what your model for mentoring is. And even though ILN has ceased, I guess how the spirit of it can live on. Sure. Well, we started by looking at the traditional model of mentoring where you have a, a senior person as a mentor, mentoring a junior person as a protege. Um, and that is a fairly one-way relationship. Most of the time, it's kind of accepted that the mentor will get something out of it, but it's kind of a little bit vague and just fuzzy about what they're going to get out of it. Mostly, it's about a, a junior person learning and being guided by a senior person. Um, when that relationship works, it's incredibly valuable and it can be so useful having that guidance of someone, but that relationship comes with certain barriers and certain assumptions that we weren't entirely comfortable with when we were developing our idea of peer mentoring. Um, it reinforces a hierarchical model of learning and it reinforces the idea that there's a point in your career where you stop learning and we didn't really like either of those ideas. <laughs> um, we also found very interestingly that there was a real lack of existing published material in the library profession demonstrating the effectiveness of traditional models of mentoring. So we, we did our literature searches, we did all that stuff and we found there hadn't really been, that we, we found a lot of evidence of mentoring programs in libraries running, but the people who ran them very rarely researched their effectiveness and, and reported on it. I mean, they probably did the research, they just didn't report on it afterwards. And we found that very interesting. Um, so we did some research into peer mentoring, group mentoring, online mentoring, all these different, like if you just do a quick search, you can find all these different models of mentoring. And we, we settled on this thing where it's a, an online peer, an, an online one-to-one -one peer mentoring relationship. Now, what that means is that it, it wasn't actually purely peer mentoring because in a pure peer mentoring, you're matching people that are at the same level. They are professional peers. And we weren't even doing that. Like you could actually in our program have a junior person matched with a senior person. It's just that that didn't come with the assumption that one, that the learning was one directional. Um, so we, we did that and then we um, put our lack of money where our mouth was and we researched. We did some evaluation from the very beginning of the ILM. We built in evaluation models and that's partly because I've spent seven years working for survey companies. Um, and so we, we set up ways to assess the effectiveness of the program and we published this in a research report called Rethinking Mentoring. That report is available on our website. That's interlibnet.org um, and it's also available through Figshare. If you just search for ILN Rethinking Mentoring, you'll find it. Um, where we actually looked at, we, we assessed the effectiveness of our program. We assessed what the outcomes were, uh, the strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I, I would love it if 
the next time there is an organization trying to do a mentoring program, they ask themselves, does it have to be this way? Does it have to be hierarchical? Does it have to be face-to-face? -face? If it's face-to-face, -face, what, what barriers does that put up? What limitations does that put on people? Um, if we're trying to do international mentoring, a lot of international mentoring programs in libraries are, um, how do I put this? They're first world to developing world. And they have built in them this idea that one is teaching and the other is learning. And that's another thing that we wanted to challenge. We felt that th that can also be a two-way learning experience. Um, so we have an incredible story from one of our participants in who runs a small network of libraries in rural Australia. And she was matched with someone who had recently been appointed as the director of public libraries for Afghanistan. And uh, this was a really surprising match for both of them. And the Afghani guy didn't actually have a background in libraries. He was trying to set up this system in this war-torn country. And he ended up using her as his almost like library consultant. She was teaching him all this stuff about libraries. But meanwhile, he was sharing with her all of this development that he was doing around how do you build a new national library and she was sharing that with her staff at her work. So you've got these people in this small public library in rural Australia seeing these plans for how you build a new national library in a country like Afghanistan. And that's such a, a two way learning experience. So how I would like the spirit of the island to live on is if people challenge those traditional ideas of mentoring and ask, is there another way that we can focus on the learning? Well, that actually is, is a good transition into the next question that we had too, about the uh, what lessons did you learn from it and does it live on in spirit? I think, <clears throat> sorry, it's clear. I think it, um, I think it definitely does. And I would agree with everything that Alison just said about challenging the way that we traditionally think about um, about doing things. One of the things that we are very keen to do as a part of wrapping up the program is um, to release a bunch of our documentation. So our policies and some of our procedures for doing things, um, the, you know, the, the ways we went about organising um, sponsorship and partnerships those kind of documents um, we will be releasing under a Creative Commons licence so that anyone can pick it up, maybe not to run a mentoring program, maybe to, I don't know, guys, attract funding for a podcast. <laughs> and, and, and for me, that would be part of the island living on in spirit. Kate, did you have anything to add to that? I suppose just the fact that every little idea can be a big idea just because it impacts on five people or 10 people or a thousand people, like for the people it makes an impact on, it's worthwhile doing. And so whether you want to make a podcast, whether you want to build a global networking program, whether you want to run a reading group at your local library for disadvantaged kids, whatever your idea is, take a risk and try it. You never know where it might go. And, and that's really become a philosophy for each of our professional lives. You never would have told me in a million years I would be living in London working with a software company. I think um, that, that feeds back to the conference that we were keynote speakers at, again, the New Librarian Symposium that's been such a feature in our 
lives. Um, and our, our catch cry from that to everybody, our, our sort of take home message was just, just do something. So if, if you feel like you need to do more, then don't wait for someone else. Just, just do it. That's, That's a great statement. That is, it's actually very inspirational. Um, cause what can I say? It, it it just what you're doing, you know, can live on in, in other forms too. And, and I want to make it really clear, like we didn't this wasn't our job. This wasn't yeah. something our bosses told us to do. This wasn't anything like that. This was just we didn't wait for anyone to give us permission. We didn't wait for someone to tap us on the shoulder to do this. We just did it. And that was scary and that's why we called that first round a pilot. Yeah. <laughs> So who had the inspiration first and who uh, and who shared Kate. it? Kate. 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 Yeah. Was it one of those uh, three in the morning, you woke up in the middle of the night and said, oh, I, I think this would be a great idea, or was it a shower inspiration? Or I had a long flight back from Finland to think about it. <laughs> and I, I separately pulled each Claire and Alison aside and went, wouldn't it be cool if? And they went, yeah, let's talk about that. And it went from a, a half-formed figment to, oh, actually, maybe this could be a thing. And then, oh, okay, let's try pilot. And then, oh, that didn't go as badly as we thought. Okay, let's try this again. <laughs> and very dangerous being friends with Kate. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds that way. <laughs> you never know where you're going to end up. <laughs> she is totally the ideas but... girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That is pretty funny. But where where we got to with this this keynote we gave at NLS and and working with that community is I think particularly important to remind people of this is it's not just do something but do something with other people. Mm. Collaboration can help you achieve those things. Like there is no version of events where the ILN could have happened just with me on my own. It it would probably not have gotten off the ground. You know, I might be a great ideas girl. Oh, I'm not bad at following through, but I got nothing on Alison on collaboration. <laughs> and I've got nothing on Claire on helping bring people together. And, you know, it was by the power of three, to quote a really bad old TV show. <laughs> it's totally true, though. I think we need another one, Chris. We have to add somebody else on here. Do you think anybody would want to be bothered with us? Ellen Druda. Yeah, Ellen Druda, yeah. <laughs> but she, but she but got so enamored. She's, money from you. I know, right? That's right. That's right. We couldn't pay her. Yeah. Yeah. So, but but the funny part about Ellen was she, uh, she got inspired and started her own podcast at her library. In the stacks. In the stacks. In the stacks. WordPress. Com. What do we get for that? There you go. That's ten bucks. Right, but they only do six-minute podcasts. That's, six that's brilliant. It's only six minutes. They talk and they talk about a book that they go into the stacks and pull. Not a bestseller. Not something that's hot and new. And they talk about it and the book. And they put the book on display. And guess what? It goes out. Yeah, I think it's great. Because how many readers, advisory librarians out there? How many people are there that are thinking, you know, oh God, I've got to come up with something else to show people this week. I'm completely out of ideas. I know. I'll listen to that six-minute podcast. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, it's brilliant. Do we get any credit for that, Chris? I, I'm not going to. You could take credit for it if you want. I just no, want I Ellen, don't want credit. No, I, I, just I just want Ellen to be Ellen our friend. <laughs> Ellen's our friend. She's our friend for life. Yeah. If you keep telling people Ellen's your friend, then eventually they'll stop believing you. Yeah, we don't even know who Ellen is. Ellen, Ellen's <laughs> yeah, <Ellen's> exactly. She's <laughs> just real cool. <laughs> your imagination. We're Ellen's friends. She sent us. <laughs> 
So I guess one last question for the group for this segment is um, how did you get nominated as a mover and shaker? And when we have people on that have been nominated and selected, everyone has a different and interesting story about the process. So kind of give us a tale on that. Um, actually, I, I hope this is an interesting story. And as I understand it, we're not necessarily meant to know who nominates us or how that happens. It's meant to be a surprise when they tell us, but we we did actually know. Um, we had someone sign up to the program. We mentioned before that very occasionally people would sign up to the program and they just wouldn't participate. And honestly, a, a surprisingly low number, like we thought this would be a lot of people and it was a tiny percentage of people did this. But we did have one person who signed up to the program who was really open, really enthusiastic, and she never heard from her partner. And she was so disappointed. And then she she tried, we, match, we tried matching her with someone else and the same thing happened. And it's so unlucky that it would happen to someone twice in a row. And so she reached out to us and she talked to us about what was going on. Um, and we just kind of got to know her through, you know, talking to her about this. She was based in the US. She's the person who nominated us. She, she believed so much in the idea of what the program was that even though she herself had a bad experience with it, she still thought it was worth nominating. And I find that remarkable. Like even people that we made, we, we didn't make a good connection for her. She's not one of the people that we had this great success, success story for. But uh, yeah, she's the one that put us out there. That's fantastic. That's a great story. Cool. It was such an honor. It really, it blew our mind. Mm. Well, you did something that was really amazing. Thanks. Even, <laughs> even though you had one of those holy crap moments when it worked and it worked too well. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. That's, that's really great. So again, we want to thank you again for taking the time out of your evening slash morning slash, I don't even know, we're in the afternoon, um, you know, depending on where you are. You know, it's an interesting logistical undertaking uh, to get all of us together. And I think Kate was really instrumental in, in figuring out the time zones and the daylight savings time switches and all that stuff. So thank you, Kate, for, for coordinating everything and for taking that, taking that leap uh, when you get you know, this, this kind of strange message over Twitter. Or <laughs> think, Do you want to be on a podcast? So, <laughs> so thank you. This, this is really, for, thank you for making the effort. This is, this is a lot of fun. And you know, now that we know that we can do this, Maybe we can do something again really soon, too. I'd really enjoy that. So when we come back, we'll be asking Kate, Claire, and Allison our top 10 library questions, or what we'd like to call the 032 list, because in the public library world, we live in Dewey and that. Um, do you guys use li Library of Congress classification in, in academic libraries in Australia? Uh, it depends on the library. Mine uses Dewey. Dewey. A small number use Library of Congress, but most don't. Because I guess it's I was... got a lot. Go ahead, I'm sorry. It's got a lot of sections for things like U.S. government, not so many for things like Australian history. Okay. Sorry, I was being a little U.S. eccentric. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, it, so anyway, the 032 list is a Dewey number for top 10 lists. And as always, we need to give credit to our friend Melanie Cardone from the Longer Public Library for naming the list of questions that we ask all our guests. So we'll be back in just a moment.
And we're back talking to Kate Byrne, uh, Claire McKenzie, and Allison Dalby. Did I get that last name right, Dalby? Yeah, you're good. All right. Uh, who will be our next participant in the O3 tool list? The questions were inspired by the website Literary Hub, an informative library-related news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com. Check them out. They do a great job educating and informing the library world on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Uh, what do you, what did you want to be when you were a child? I guess that's for Kate first. I I was one of those kids who never really had a strong idea of what I wanted to be when I grew up. I still don't really. Um, I've just never wanted to be bored, so I've kind of just kept out running boredom. Really, um, not the most exciting when I want to grow up story. But, um... <laughs> no, it's a great answer. Though. <laughs> Okay, so what was your first memory of a library as a child, and uh, who brought you to the library for the first time? So I'm one of those next-generation librarians. My dad is actually a librarian. He's retired now. Um, and I have been in libraries, I think, from far longer than I can remember, really. I, I loved my primary school librarian, Mrs. Otley. I still remember her fondly. But I think one of the clearest early library memories I have, I was about seven and uh, I was actually helping with my first ever university library relocation project, uh, which was when the then Northern Territory University Library was being moved to its brand new building. It had only been set up a few years before and they'd built this shiny new building for it to go in. And so the whole collection was being relocated this one weekend. And it was a, a whole of library community affair and all of the, the library staff, all of their spouses, all of their children, were all pitching in to help get the library into its new facility. So I remember my first library job being babysitting at a, uh, a big library relocation project. And was that in Darwin, Kate? That was in Darwin. So Darwin, for uh, those playing at home in the US, is uh, Australia's smallest capital city, uh, which is in the, the bumpy bit right at the very top of Australia in the tropics and it when I grew up there had about 60,000 people in it but did have a very busy international airport because it's planes made any in Asia and then on oh, Kate you broke up on us there for a minute <clears throat> okay I guess we're going to the next question uh, mm -hmm. I, and I guess we're going to direct this one at Claire when did you decide to work in a library? And if not, what was your first career path? Because a lot of librarians uh, and staff choose the profession as their second career. Yeah, I'm a career change librarian. Um, I kind of fell into it. I was um, volunteering in the library at my kids' school. I had eight or ten years out of the paid workforce when my kids were growing up. And I was volunteering in their, their primary school, which I guess is elementary school in the U.S., Yep. Um, and it very quickly it very quickly became obvious that I was terrible at covering books, which was the standard parents who want to help uh, task. So they actually got me on the computer doing some accessioning instead. And from there I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I could probably study this. And like I said, it's available in Australia as an undergraduate degree. By the time I did that part-time and raised three children and moved house a couple of times and a bunch of other stuff happened. It actually took me nine years to get that degree. And um, I, when I got that, I thought I better start working in a library now. <laughs> and I've, I started in a very small 
academic library and that's where I've been ever since, about eight years now. Okay, Bob, you're up. <clears throat> Sorry, okay, good. Um, so who is your favorite fictional librarian? I guess this is for Kate. Do we still have Kate? Yes, I'm here. Okay, great. It's got to uh, be Ellen Druda, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I, love it it comes out of I love it when it comes out of nowhere. That's great. Seems a, a little bit harsh to call her fictional. Um, <laughs> I, I, think, I think I have to um, uh, to go for a classic here and, and give a shout out to Giles from Buffy. Um, whilst I know he gets a bit of a bad rep for perhaps not being a great librarian, being a bit of a technophobe, and, um, you know, a lot of his books seem to burn down quite regularly. <laughs> um, but actually he always puts his community first and he gets out there and he's mentoring those kids in some very creative ways. So I think I'm going to give him my vote. Anybody else have a favourite fictional? Giles gets my vote, I'm afraid. Maybe the orangutan from... Um, oh, yes. Um, from uh, the Discworld books. Yes, the Discworld books. Yeah. yeah. Terry Pratchett. Okay, so let's see. Where are we? Do you guys so, keep like a running tally of, of who the most popular fictional librarians are for all your podcast guests? We don't, but we should. That's a great idea. We haven't had too many repeats either. No, and, and believe it or not, the one we thought that would get the most would be Batgirl from the old Batman mm -hmm. series from the 60s, but only a couple of us came back. A couple of, of, of uh, guests came back with that. Most of the time, it's um, uh, the librarian from Harry Potter or the <laughs> Jedi librarian. or um... I did hear one of your earlier guests uh, mention Francis from the Australian TV series, The Librarians. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's right, yeah. We did have one of them. Very, very realistic, a little disturbingly realistic. At yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes felt like a documentary. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, but it is interesting to see the different uh, answers when we get for the fictional librarian mm -hmm. question. So moving on to the next question, what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? Which, this is kind of a loaded question for two of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know what they'd be doing. <laughs> My life? <laughs> Yeah, so I, I am not working in a library right now. I work for a software company called Symplectic. We build research information management software for universities and research institutions. And I love what I'm doing. So I'm, I have a job called a product manager, which is a bit of uh, IT jargon, but it means that I'm responsible for software development and also community engagement. And I love that I get to keep doing collaboration. I keep getting to work with people and draw on all of those library skills. But also I get to make things exist. And it's so exciting to me that I, I work with this fantastic team and we talk about ideas, we work with the community, bring back ideas, and then suddenly it exists in the world and I get to play with it and test it and send it out there and represent these ideas brought into reality. And I think that is so cool. So I would absolutely be doing what I'm doing right now. That really is cool stuff. Anybody else want to chime in on their favorite? Um... What they were doing? Well, I guess Claire, that's the only one that the question actually fits to, right? <laughs> um, I, well, I've done so many things over the years. Um, I think at the moment I'm happy working in a library. I've only been in libraries for about eight years now. And so um, I'm enjoying my career track at this point. I don't know what else I would do. I really love working at a university. So I think if I wasn't working in a library, I would probably be looking at something else in the university environment. 
So I guess, Claire, if you want to continue, what, what is your favorite section of the library? So my, my, my library at the University of Wollongong, my favorite part by far is our brand new makerspace. So mm. we, we got um, some, some student-related funding and built a makerspace, which opened earlier this year. And I just love walking past and seeing it's, it's chock-a-block full of students all the time and they're doing all sorts of interesting and unusual things. One of the things they do is it's got some really big tables in it that, are, that a lot of kids can kind of get around with their laptops and do things. And there's a lot of collaboration in that space. You can see it all the time and, and they're waiting. The library opens at 8 in the morning, but the makerspace doesn't open until 10. And so they're standing there waiting for it to open. It's um, it's really brought some an enormous amount of energy into um, what was already a, a pretty buzzing environment, the, the ground floor of our library, but the, the makerspace is awesome. Yay for makerspaces. Right, Bob? Go ahead, Chris. Talk about your makerspace. No, I'm not going to talk about my makerspace. But no. <laughs> no, you really should. You should talk about it a little well, bit. HM's got some great stuff. I could talk about it. You, why don't you talk about it, yeah. They have great stuff. I mean, they have a digi they have an engraver, right? And they do a lot of woodwork. I mean, they do some crazy stuff over there. Yeah, it's it's we have a lot of fun with it, and it's fun. You have, it's, form, you have a form three D printer, right? Yeah, the form two liquid resin printer. So we're the only yeah. uh, public library in New York State that has a that has that particular oh, type. Boy. I know. <laughs> you you brought it up, not me. I know you got the we VR have, stuff. Um, we have we have all of that stuff. We have some virtual reality, some um, sewing machines, and. 3D printers and wood cutting type material. But we've also got, and this is also intensely popular, um, a Lego table and uh, knitting. So there's always a basket of knitting on the Lego table and there's often students, particularly now where we're just coming into exams, this week is the last, is the, um, the study week between semester and exams. And so there's always students in there Stress releasing, I guess, by building tall towers out of Lego and knitting a few lines on a on a scarf. That's pretty neat. Mm. So, okay, the next question: If you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to the library? Um, I'm guessing this one might be aimed at me, and mm. by the library. Well, I don't. I'm not in a library, but. If you're talking the libraries like my local public library that I use, um, it's not more English language books, but it would entirely be more English language books and more English language activities. <laughs> um, moving to, to Denmark has given me a tiny, tiny glimpse of the migrant experience. And I am mm. so hesitant to say that because I'm moving from one first world country to another first world country. Everyone in Denmark speaks English. Like it's not hard, but I don't speak Danish. I'm learning Danish very slowly. But it's that feeling that I used to be able to go to talks at my public library and now I can't because I don't understand mm. them. I can get some books in English and there there is a selection of books in English, but it's very limited. Um, so on a purely selfish level, infinite space and budget would be more English language programming and material. <laughs> I wonder if you can get ebooks in English from that library. Yeah, yeah, you can. Yeah, that'd probably be the but alternative. But again, it's, it's um, like any library; their their collection is is limited. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, it's very limited when you're talking about uh, the language that is not actually the native language of the country. Sure. <laughs> exactly. 
Yeah. Okay, next question, Bob. So what do you what do you love about your library? And I guess we can go around the group with this. Um, I might start since I'm the only one of us that actually works in the library. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, the thing that I, there's two things that I love about the library, our library at Wollongong is, the first is that that concept of on a university campus, the library as, as the hub, as the kind of heartbeat, I suppose, of the campus where we're discipline agnostic. So everyone comes together in the library. It doesn't matter whether you're studying creative arts or medicine. It's um, it's a, a safe central space. So I like that. And the other thing that I love about it is, um, is the students. Man, students do weird stuff, but it's always entertaining. Like there's always something happening and there's there's always people in there. How about the two expats? Well, I'm going to take a bit of a liberty here and define my library as the amazing libraries I get to work with in my day job. So we work with about 95 of uh, leading research institutions around the world. And I, in my specialization in open access, get to partner with lots of fantastic libraries out there. And hands down for me, it is the people. The profession that we share is this amazing vanguard of people with ideas and a willingness to share them and get involved. And I continue to be inspired by them every single day. You can't beat that. Holy cow. Okay. So let's see. What is the, and you could call on your experience in the past. What is the weirdest, not necessarily worst thing that you has ever happened in your library? Everybody has a great story for this. Um, I'm going to mention something that happened while Kate, Claire, and I were all working at the University of New South Wales Library. And I don't know if these two remember this, but one day we got an email say that, saying that the library is going into lockdown because there is a swarm of bees out the front of the library, <laughs> so no one can leave. You remember that, Claire? You remember that? I, I was on sick leave that day. I wasn't at work. Well, good thing. Otherwise, the bees might have gotten you. Um, and and this was this was shortly. This was a couple of weeks after there had been a really big storm. And this was a, a really tall building on the top of a hill in Sydney. And um, while this this storm was happening, a part of the corrugated iron roof started kind of coming off. And so once again, the library had to be in lockdown just in case somebody walked out of the library and was suddenly kind of decapitated by a flying piece of corrugated iron. It never got that bad, and I'm, you know, giving a shout out to the wonderful health and safety record at the <laughs> library there. Um, but I just think getting an email saying you can't leave the building because the bees—that had to be up there on top of one of the weirdest things that have happened to me in the library. So the day that the the sheet of metal got pulled up off the roof, that it's an old um, 1960s brutalist building, very glamorous, lots of concrete. <laughs> and there's kind of like a low level at the front that was built first and then a big tower behind it and where all of the executives in the boardroom are overlooks the, the the roof of the lower section at the front and actually the head of facilities for the entire university happened to be sitting in that meeting room when this storm hit and when that piece of metal curled up off the roof and by all accounts he just stood up and went um I think I need to go do something about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
So I guess, um, who would you say is your favorite regular patron? Um, my first job working in a library uh, was working for the History of Medicine Library, which was part of the Royal Australasian College of Physicians. It was a very small, special library, um, very specialized collection, medical history collection. And uh, we had a small patron group predominantly comprised of retired physicians. And these mostly men were so charming, utterly charming. Um, my favorite patron was a man named Dr. Bruce Story, who was a pediatrician and neonatal doctor actually. Um, and he was about 80 years old at this point and he would bounce into the library. This guy had the energy of a toddler, I kid you not. He would just bounce into the library and be like, Alison, Alison, what's going on? What's the latest thing you've got in? What have you got? What are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. And I would have to follow him around the library because he would be walking around just randomly picking stuff up off shelves and dropping them elsewhere. And I just had to kind of pick up behind him as he was going. And he just, he was so committed to this. At the age of 80, he was doing more studying into medical history, more research into this. And he was, he was an absolute prankster as well. He was constantly pulling little practical jokes. I had a library assistant who used to refer to him as Dr. S. He'd be like, hey, Dr. S. He was, <laughs> he was just the most wonderful, charming guy. And I, I feel really, it, a lot of them were kind of like that. A lot of these uh, older retired physicians had so much love for their profession that they were devoting their retirement to learning about the history of it. Um, and I, it is one of the luxuries when you're working in a small special library is that you get to go so deeply into a subject and also into people and to the things they're passionate about. Um, because, uh, you know, the smaller patron group you have, the deeper you get to know them, really. Right. Um, but uh, Dr. Bruce Story, he was the best, just the best. <laughs> Anybody else have any favorites? It's okay to say no. We hate them I, all. I don't have. Yeah. <laughs> no, my um. Actually, have a lot of uh, front-facing, you know, patron-facing um, experience in the library. M my roles have always been around um, relationship building and engagement outside the library. So, I, when I was at UNSW, I worked with academics at the university, and we had a we had a few. Uh, favorites is an interesting word that I won't I won't talk about some of those um, some of those academics. Um, <laughs> you should never know they might be listening. Um, so some of them were probably uh, the physicians now... that were coming to my library. So. <laughs> Sorry, some of them were probably the physicians Sorry? that were coming to my library. <laughs> yeah, and Kate probably knows some of the people I'm thinking of. Um, <laughs> Okay, so let's see. Last question. Oh, so, aren't you so glad this is almost over? What are people... What are, <laughs> well, the delayed fun. response really made me hanging up there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> what are people without library cards missing out on? Uh, look, I am going... Chris, I'm going to say nothing because what is this library card you're talking about? I've never yeah. worked in a library that has a library card. When I use <laughs> the public libraries here in Denmark... I am not using a library card. I'm using my social security card. The whole thing is on the same network. 
So what, what is this library card you're talking about? Why do we need a card to access our library? Now that's an answer I didn't expect. Chris, what do you got for that? Uh, the first thing she said was uh, about the social security number. I'm thinking, well, oh boy, identity theft. <laughs> yeah, this is Denmark. We're very trusting over here. Yeah, you're not kidding. Wow. Social security card for your library card. Wow. That would be hacked in about, what, 10 minutes, Bob? I know a, a ton of Americans that would not be okay with that. Is it the whole thing or just the last four? Well, we don't know well, how many numbers one. they have. Like it's the whole it's the whole social security card? That's your library card? Yeah. Wow. It's also my, my medical card, my health card. It's 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 what I use to log into everything. And yep. likewise though, in Europe you've got really strong data protection laws that um, can that put a lot of controls in place about who can legally use this. Of course, there's always people that can use things illegally. That's a different matter. Um, but in terms of the legal use, I know that some countries are a little bit more nervous about even the, the legal use of their personal data. And also, Alison, in Denmark, haven't all public libraries and um, the kind of frontline government services offices been merged? I don't know. I know that I know several of them have. I don't yeah, know if it's I thought... to all of them. I, I, I don't like from my local uh, municipal public library. I don't think that's happened yet. Mm -hmm. But that's I know it has happened in some areas like uh, down south um, mm -hmm. and outside of the city. That's certainly happening. Yeah, they're moving to all digital communication or remote. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Very but again, I, I mean, Denmark is it's a tiny country. There's five and a half million people here. Um, it's it's an easy changes like that five and a half million people with good internet connections um this is not australia this is not america um yeah <laughs> you can make nice changes like that <laughs> isn't that about the population in nassau and suffolk county yeah i think it is i think it's just suffolk county alone it's five million right it's yeah it's tiny Bob? and i gotta say sometimes the shopping options not so great <laughs> But I've got yes. London. London's right there. I can pop over to London and see Kate and go shopping. <laughs> it's a different world out there, Bob. It is. And I, I'm telling you, it's much simpler, it seems. Yeah. But, well. 1.5 million people in uh, Suffolk County, so it's, I guess it's bigger. Yeah. Well, oh, well. Yeah, well, Suffolk, Nassau, and Queens, you put them together, that's pretty close. Yeah, probably so, yeah. yeah. So nobody else about library cards that people missing out on? Other than the trick question, the quick trick answer we got over there? <laughs> How can I top Allison's answer? <laughs> that may make us take the whole question away. Oh. That's a mic drop moment right there. Good thing you go. Can be a like library can be there for when they need it, and I think a lot of libraries see that in their programming. You know, there's when kids are in school or when parents have kids or retirees, and then there's there's kind of other opportunities to lure people in. You know, I, I joined my local library here because I realized it was just around the corner and I could borrow books when I moved here and I was desperately trying to not build up a giant pile of books again in another part of the world. <laughs> um, you know, I think people, people do come and go with libraries sometimes and that's okay. But I think what is important is, is that libraries are, are showing their value and communicating their value and connecting to the needs of their individual communities. Because if they do that, then, then people won't miss out. They, would, they will hear about it and they will find their way to the library, whether they had a card to begin with or not. That's a good answer. 
We keep we always get good answers for that last question. So we have to say now we're go ahead. International Library Pros. This is is this the International Library Pros. But now we're international. I mean, like now we can say that in our in all of our stuff. We're international. We're international. Mm, you're gonna have to redo your Twitter handle and everything. It's gonna get yeah, messy. Yeah. Oh, now it's a mess. I'm gonna need some well, collaboration. <laughs> we need some mentors. We need a couple of mentors. Oh my god, the job just keeps keeps getting bigger and bigger. Now I know how you guys felt. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so yeah, much for being such good. Go ahead, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say, find, find the bits you love, and remember you can say no sometimes. We got to the plugs, right? Yeah, it's time for plugs. But first we want to say thank you for being such good sports and answering our list of questions. I mean, sometimes some people see them as a little silly, but I think we have a good time with them. And it was really fun having you on the podcast. So uh, one thing I know that you wanted us to mention was the website interlibnet.org. It's I-N-T-E-R-L-I-B-N-E-T.org. Um, I think that encompasses most of um, the embodiment of what we were talking about today. Um, anybody want to tell me a little bit about site? This is that has been the home of the International Librarians Network. So we have that. And I'm... Oh, we're losing Kate again. If I can um, maybe just step in there, then um, one thing I would say is that that oh, no, Kate keeps. Oh, okay. Um, the the website has definitely been where all of the content to run the program has been. Uh, we mentioned earlier that we share discussion topics with all of our participants. All of that content is up there. You can go onto that website and find literally hundreds of articles written by librarians around the world. So just browsing through our archives will give you a massively international view on our profession. Excellent. And thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you again for making taking time out of your evening slash morning to be with us today because uh, I know we really appreciate it. It's been Thanks lots of fun. Thank of fun. you very much for oh. having us. It's been really, really cool. And we have to do, uh, we have to do this again. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah, come up with another topic and then, uh, and then we can totally like run out of memory on my iPad and, and <laughs> <laughs> completely fall apart. <laughs> Okay, so on that crash of a note, <laughs> that's all the time we have for this edition. So if you have any questions or comments about um, if you have any questions or comments about our show, please go to the contact us section of our website, thelibrarypost.com, where we'll have notes and links from today's from all of our episodes, including today's episode. And you can also check us out on Twitter at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash librarypros. And please don't forget to subscribe on RSS, iTunes, which is also Apple Podcasts, Android, email, and Google Play. And remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and not, a of, not those of the Station Public Library, MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. So we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Cristofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>